Hi, I'm Esther Wagner, and you're listening to the From R for Seed podcast, a short series about writing, tying with From R for Seed 2019, an anthology of prose and poetry. In each episode, we talk with an author whose work is published in the anthology, and we'll listen to their story or poems. This episode, the prolific writer Josh Wagner drops into the booth. You know, I would absorb something from that process, and like little bits and pieces of all of the authors that I've loved and attempted to emanate kind of get stuck, um, like magnetically. And then at the end of doing this for years and years and years, I think that's where a unique voice develops. Josh's writing career spans over a decade. He's published countless novels and short stories. And I talk with him about how his approach to writing has changed over the years, what makes a writer's voice, and of course, about Alveolus, his contribution to the From Arthur Seed anthology. Enjoy. Okay, so that's going to be your voice from now on, right? That's uh-huh. just going to be your speaking voice. Yes! <laughs> We're not going to cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> and we've peaked the interview. Exactly. The rest is all downhill from here. <laughs> Definitely. Anyway, welcome, Josh. Thanks, Wester. I've had the pleasure of um, reading quite a few of your stories, actually. What I have to say is that they, they have this very distinct style that I really like. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's always very clear when I read a story that you wrote that it's you who wrote them, right? Okay. There's just, just something about it. Do you, can you define maybe your style? Uh, probably not. Uh, maybe I'll go off on a tangent here because I was just talking about um, voice with my partner a few days ago, and mm-hmm. we were talking about how, um, or at least in my experience of developing an authorial voice, I spent a lot of time mimicking and imitating other writers that I loved. I would usually pick one, not consciously, but every year or so I would find a new writer I was obsessed with. And I would try to write like that person. Right. And then inevitably fail, but the and then kind of ease off on that writer and move into other streams. But something would come off. You know, I would absorb something from that process. And like little bits and pieces of all of the authors that I've loved and attempted to emanate kind of get stuck. Um, like magnetically and then at the end of doing this for years and years and years I think that's where a unique voice develops right Um, so it's little bits and pieces that maybe somebody who uh, is really knowledgeable in literature could probe into the work and be like oh that looks like he was influenced by this person or that person or the other well you're not really secretive about your influences either right no I don't think so Um, as far as I'm aware I have a handful that I can feel. I mean, I can remember specifically trying to write like certain people at certain phases of my process. Um, But at the core of it all is also just you. It's like the kid who watched cartoons and listened to maybe different music or different lyrics as a child or their father's voice or their best friend's voice. All these are way down in the in the mix of the stew. Exactly. Even if you haven't actually tried to emulate mm-hmm. other people's voices, automatically your own voice is, is going to be sort of like a chameleon, right? You're going yeah. to absorb all your environment and taking that with you as you develop a voice. Exactly. But when it comes to a writer's voice, I suppose it does help to be more conscious about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's at least what you have done. Is there some still something left of, for example, certain offer that you can see yourself in your work? Um, well, there's certain chapters uh, that I've been working on with this new project that I reread them and I think, oh boy, that you know, 
I need to shave a little bit of the David Foster Wallace influence oh, off of this. I see, yeah. um, but it was good for me because it's, it was a style I'd never considered writing in before. And so I was able to, I found myself going deeper into a topic than I ever had before. I think that's the important thing that I learned from him, not necessarily to emulate the way he writes, right. but the way that he probes uh, in great detail and the depth of a subject. So doing that in like feed, which I'm not sure if you read that one, um, you know, I can see that. And then uh, I, I sort of see some Marquez influence in places, although that guy's still pure fucking magic to me. I, can't, I couldn't even begin to analyze how he does what he does. It's, it's amazing. It's miraculous. You are writing, I think, four books, and the idea of these books that you're writing is to also do stuff in different styles, right? Correct. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about? Yeah, um, I about call what it you're doing? when I tell people I'm writing four or five books. I it hasn't quite crystallized yet how many there's going to be. Um, they say, "Oh, like a series," <laughs> and I said no so many times. I had to come up with an alternative, so I call it a parallel. So the idea is that there's multiple stories, multiple genres, multiple voices that are all working around or orbiting around the same central idea um, with the same characters here and there. So there's a young adult novel, which kind of tells the story from the child's point of view. Um, there's a more third-person omniscient novel, which touches all sorts of aspects. There's a book that's written by one of the characters that you'll find in the third-person point of view. And then probably a short story collection and possibly a memoir as well. That's really cool stuff. Over the last year, you have written quite a lot of short stories. And whenever you've finished one and I read it, I'm constantly asking, okay, so is this going to be part of your <laughs> short story book? And generally you say yes. The one that's published in From Our First Seed, is mm -hmm. that going to be part of it as well? I haven't decided yet. Um <clears throat> I feel like I would have to make some changes to it to make it fit into that short collection. And I don't really want to do that. I don't want to force any stories into it. Right. Um, so probably not. But in terms of style, it's it could fit. I mean, it could. Your, the idea you have with your book is mm -hmm. that it, well, maybe you can. Um, at least for this book of short stories, yeah. um, I want each short story to be directly connected to a certain Japanese Japanese monster yeah. uh, or yokai, and um, there isn't really one that I've figured out that connects with, connects this, with this one. Arthur seat. But if if there was, if one, I mean, there's so they have so many, um, and if something arose that I felt connected, then yeah, I would probably consider it. Right, but it shouldn't be this artificial on the surface yeah. connection either. Exactly. Right. Oh, cool. When I read your stuff, uh, there's a there's a certain there's certain elements that, that spring to mind. Uh, you use well, obviously, you use difficult words, but generally you use them for a purpose, right? So you you try to imbue your stories with certain concepts, and you you, you need to use difficult words to sort of grasp at what that concept mm -hmm. means. Mm -hmm. Your stories work generally work on a, on a conceptual level really well. Thank you. Uh, I'm not really sure whether the whether that connects well with the voice that you you have as much, but uh. I could see that, and I appreciate you saying that because there were a lot of years where 
I think I was using big words, not necessarily to sound impressive, mm. but to learn how to use them. Right. Um, and I have always wanted to, ever since I was very young, wanted to explore concepts through which it's difficult to do without those big specific words. It's the specificity in the word that makes them valuable. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I think I've gotten better at not relying on those, but trying to find, you know, more normal ways to say the things right. that I'm trying to talk about. So when you're now, because you have already published a couple of pieces, mm -hmm. right? When you now look back at your writing career, do you see that as well? Do you reread them and be like, okay, I shouldn't have used these words here because mm -hmm. now I wouldn't rely on them so much? Absolutely. Yeah, especially in the older stuff. And fortunately, I retain the rights to all my older books uh, at this point. So I've actually been over the past couple of years going through them and doing some new revisions and easing off on that kind of stuff. This and is kind of the writer's dream in a way, but yeah. <laughs> maybe a publisher's nightmare. Right. Yeah. The, I mean, the modern era has allowed us to at least as far revise, as yeah. Yeah, the self-publishing goes and just update the book on Amazon. And yeah, but that's that's generally how it works. Mm -hmm. um, how do you um, how do you generally approach writing? Do you just sit down and start typing away or do you generally have a concept that you wish to explore and start it's, hacking away at it piece by piece? It's changed a lot dramatically over the years. Um, I wrote my first book in 1999, um, the, the book I consider my first book, the book that eventually got published. And that was written the first draft in about six weeks. And it was just an in, it, entirely manic experience writing that book. Um, so I didn't necessarily craft or plot or plan anything. I just sat down in a kind of berserker frenzy and hacked it out. But then when you know when you write that way, that means you have to go back and do a lot of editing. And I ended up spending a lot of editing time on that book. And so little by little, as the newer books came out, I would give them a bit more time. Still was kind of a manic frenzy. And then at some point I flipped and now I'm working on this project and I've been working on it for at least four years. It uh, encompasses material that was written over 10 years ago. Um, it's a, I feel a lot more like a curator in, in a lot of ways than just a spontaneous creative force. Curating your own mm -hmm. life work in a way. Yeah, and curating information from the real world. I originally wrote fantasy, um, and although I was dealing with I, what I believe to be important concepts to humans, everything about it was fantastic and made up. And now I want to live in the real world and I want to incorporate historical information and um, real citizen, you know, city life. While still retaining a little bit of magic in there. Absolutely. I mean, magical realism is, of course, something that, uh, well, you mentioned, Marquez. I mean, you, yeah. it's something that's close to your heart and that mm -hmm. you can also find in the piece that's been published in From Arfosy, Alveolus. Yeah. But before we dive into that, I want to talk a little bit more about your the, the books that you're going to be writing um are all of these have all of these have to do with yokai or yeah that's some, this are that, the other elements you're mm, bringing to the table it's the central idea i think from which all of these other ideas have bloomed um i'm really interested in transformation hmm. and i have been for a long time and liminal spaces 
and these zones where something is neither one way or another. And I feel like the bakemono the ch is the changing thing that yeah. encapsulates that idea. So everything's going to kind of come back to that concept. But it does, the central core plot element is expats living in Japan who believe that they were yokai, were bakemono a long time ago, um, and that they had made a pact to be mortal so that they could die. And then at the moment that the story starts, they're all starting to remember that um, that they were this way. Or remember from their point of view. Um, it's more likely this is some sort of a shared delusion because I am trying to ground the details in reality, even though within the minds of the characters, things can get pretty wild. But you're, you're going to tell this from the perspective of this group. Mm -hmm. Correct, yeah. And there's a couple particular characters that are central. There's not one main character. I would say there's probably three or four. Okay. Um, and that's maybe why there's so many books. Uh, one of these main characters has written a work of historical fiction, which takes place in Meiji, Japan, mm -hmm. um, based on a imaginative experience that he believes he had when he was a yokai who became a dog. <laughs> So that okay, so yeah, this does definitely sounds like a Josh story already. <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned you, you feel more like a curator rather than a than a writer of your own work at times. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you work on so many books at once? I mean, generally, m well, most writers would already consider one book to be daunting. It's daunting for sure, um, but it is a strategy to keep myself engaged because I am very flighty <laughs> and my attention is easily distracted. Um, my lifestyle bears this out. I move a lot. I, I don't think I've lived in the same place for more than two years since I was a, a kid. Um, and so it's the same thing here. Like if I get bored with one project, I'm not going to feel like I'm facing some sort of dark writer's block because I can't continue. I will just switch gears and start working on the other one. And since the books are all tied together, they inform each other. And as I work on one, it starts to inspire ideas in another. Right. And it's really been able to allow me to keep keep going. I guess most people, even if they're flighty, they'll rather be like, okay, I'll just finish this one book now mm -hmm. and then I'll go on to the next one instead of working on so many different projects at mm -hmm. once. Well, as I said, I used to be able to do that and it was probably because I was more manic and was able to just sit down, ignore the rest of reality, and kick this book out. Right. Um, but I no longer feel like I can operate in that mode. I have to operate much more slowly. I find a lot more joy in just going sentence by sentence. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me to kick one of these books out would take a lot longer than it used to. Right. Um, but also, I, of course, because these books are all connected, so you can't just... Yeah. Suddenly dish them out. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them down the road. My ideal dream for these books is a little weird. It's probably something that no publisher is really going to want to hear. And it's that somebody would pick up the young adult book as a, you know, eight year old, 10 year old, 12 year old. Love it. Um, you know how we all sort of treasure our young adult Inside yeah. yeah, exactly. And you still kind of do. Yeah, exactly. And you go back and you're like, oh, I read this book as a kid and it really changed my life. And exactly. I would love, I've always loved it. 
da, 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 da. But you grow up, you put it on your shelf, and then this hypothetical reader would go to school, um, either go into a college course where they were teaching it, <laughs> ideally, um, or they would just somehow, somehow stumble upon it, upon right. the big one. And as they're reading through it, they would little by little start to realize these books are connected. Um, of course, to do that, I would have to have different like, pseudonyms for yeah. authorship. So, but now you're already betraying the whole. You're, oh, you're I know, sharing but... the whole story. <laughs> Shit. Well, yeah, I mean, if you use pseudonyms that aren't anything yeah. like Josh Wagner, I guess you could get away with it. Maybe and so. Then maybe one day, like ten years down the line, someone would dig up this podcast. And be like, <laughs> oh, hey! He gave it he, away. He gave it away. <laughs> yeah. So, well. I don't necessarily, I'm not like trying to manipulate the world in such a fashion. <laughs> this is just kind of a motivating fantasy of mine. Right. That it would be, because I think that that's what, I, that would bring me so much joy. If I have, if I could look back at one of the books that I loved as a child, yeah. and then I, now I stumble across something that is 10 times as large, written way more sophisticatedly, goes into great detail on the emotional depth and political conflict that was circulating around the time of this young adult book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love that. That would be my dream reading experience. So I guess in a way I'm trying to set that up. You can only really pull this off if you have very distinct voices. Correct. And I believe you're very much capable of that. So I wish Thank you, you all the best. It's a challenge. That. Yeah. yeah. Uh, shall we delve into your story into the more, well, yeah. de- shall we delve into the more present and uh, dive into the story that you got published for uh, from Arthur Seed, Alveolus? Is there anything you want to say about the process of writing this piece? Um, yeah, it links to to a part a, a particular process that I've discovered uh, within the last few years. The last book I put out was called Shapes the Sunlight Takes, and it was based on three short stories that were completely unrelated that I had written during my undergrad. I liked all of them. Um, At the time, I felt like short story writing was completely mysterious to me. I'm finally, actually this year at the University of Edinburgh, I feel like I'm finally getting a handle on how to write a short story for the first time in my life. But I was holding these short stories and I was thinking, I, I love these characters, I love what's happening, but they're obviously not working standalone pieces. So I gotta do something with them. And um, I made it a challenge to take these pieces and weave them into a novel. And it's something similar is happening with Alveolus in that the the middle piece and the opening pieces are, they were originally written separately. They weren't intended to be part of the same story. Um, And then holding on to those, feeling like I loved them, but still they were, they felt incomplete in a way, like I wouldn't necessarily want to read them on their own. Um, made it the next challenge was to work them together and I felt like each one complemented the other giving the other one something that it was lacking so for instance the middle piece about the girl in the dentist chair provides some really salient present now detail to what's otherwise a kind of abstract story and then the abstract framing of that piece gives Alveolus, the universal and ethereal qualities that I wanted it to have, which I don't think it fully does on its own. Like as a as a reader, mm-hmm. I enjoyed the middle part more than the mm-hmm. the conceptual part. But mm-hmm. as a 
some sort of like the academic part of my brain and maybe <laughs> the writerly part of my brain was really happy with the, the the piece surrounding that middle just because it just gave it more body right yeah and i guess that's cool. what you wanted to achieve it is it is it's nice to hear shall we hear john read the piece and then we'll talk about it after absolutely Alveolus by Josh Wagner In the beginning She was sneezed into being, floating between the beams, a thing in the dark. And no matter what she would become later, those first inklings popped her cork to a wild blue yonder, establishing patterns she could never entirely escape. Generation after generation, defined by a futile ache for cohesion, a soul in search of a body. First she split in two, then four, eight, sixteen. Soon she would flow like water from one drop to another. Then, trillions of incarnations later, something amazing happens. Now she's a little yellow light, one of hundreds, drifting between the summer leaves. Her skin crackles like magnesium shavings. In this form, the concept of I, which has long been with her, like a tiny mental glow between the eyes, but whose reference she has never fully grasped, finally grasps its own reference. Maybe it's because now that she is a tiny glow, it's all started to, oops, snatched and eaten up. On to the next. When she wakes up, she has become the same kind of thing that just ate her, leathery and cold. Glossy eyes stare longingly into the sky. She fills her guts with swarms of former kin. Hungry to reconnect with herself, the eye grows more persuasive. Her jaws are strong. She licks at clouds. Later, she dies from a microbial invasion. By the time she's up and walking around on four legs, the descendants of those invaders work for her, civilizing her interior. Her nostrils are vestibules, her lungs furious with air. Two legs now. Legions of new voices in her head struggle for control over the eye and its little light. At night she wrings her hands. She aches for dissemination to fill the empty spaces. To exist both down in the valley and up on the mountain. To sleep in the grass while also lost at sea. She hikes through forests at dusk, pursuing an endlessly receding horizon, mesmerised by the little floating lights who blink in and out of existence. Something tickles her nose. She squeezes her eyes, a sharp intake of breath. From the darkness, embers bloom, fracturing dawn's golden shell. Now. Her dentist browses a tray of hard steel. He rattles off terms she's never heard and doesn't understand. I don't care, just get it over with. She takes prolonged breaths from the translucent crystal green mask and accepts the pinch of his needle as a necessary evil. It isn't as bad as she remembers. As a child, those damn shots would come in like a chainsaw. The ceiling is a grid of beige tiles. 
the centre tile has been replaced by the oversaturated painting of an agrarian landscape whose peach sunset ignites stratocumulus clouds. In the field, a lone oak stands. She recognises this tree. Yes, this exact tree. She saw it last week in a vision, one of her funny little visions. Ha <laughs> ha. She feels the incision but not the pain. It's a bit like someone drawing a line on her gums with a ballpoint pen. Her dentist clacks the titanium jaws of forceps three times in front of her face, like some periodontal ritual. To think this all started with a sneeze. All her life, whenever she sneezes, her field of vision gets blasted shotgun style by these temporary black holes. Through them, she has witnessed wonders, bright colours and swirling patterns and grotesque creatures moving to and fro. Lasts a minute or two at most. Her close friends don't say, bless you. They say, what did you see? This time it was teeth. Fields and fields of teeth drifting in the breeze. Strings of teeth hanging from the branches of a lone oak. Yes, that exact oak. The dentist swoops in and digs up part of a tooth. This surprises her, and she's surprised by her surprise. Of course it's a tooth. But when he rotates it under the light, she realises it isn't a tooth at all. It's a proximal tarsal ossicle, the tiny bone of a baby bird. A few minutes later, he emerges with a golden lump. Part of an old filling? Wait, not gold. It's copper. The BB, she thinks. Transported back to the day her brother shot her. He hadn't meant to. It ricocheted and pierced her cheek. She'd promised to keep it secret. Apparently, she'd kept the slug as well. Next, her dentist draws loose a thin silver chain. She feels its anchoring pearl pop free. A gift from the inaugural boyfriend, who eventually cheated on her with the debate team captain and his sister. Bawled her eyes out in a Fred Meyer parking lot. Hurled the necklace at his vanishing taillights. Had she gone back for it and forgotten? Swallowed it down in some ritual of teenage sex magic revenge? Here comes the coin she flipped to see who got to sit next to Arnold Fetcher. The coiled shell he brought back for her from Crete. The SD card she accidentally left in the class camera. The one with those pictures on it. The pink rabbit's foot she felt from her mother's purse on a road trip to South Dakota. Her first crime. And a big stupid secret which, over time, extinguished any hope of genuine communication between them as if something looming and dreadful blistered on the foot itself, wedging them apart. She sneezed at the funeral, seen herself in the casket. Deeper and deeper goes the alveolar excavation. Here's a bit from when she clipped her dog's toenail too deep. A pinky ring from her first grade best friend. Her fear of fuzzy caterpillars. The spontaneous orgasm at church. A rejection letter from Rochester. The same random numbers she always picks. A dream where she became the fulcrum at the rupturing base of the ocean. Her hope of overcoming all major weaknesses by 45. 
every fingernail she's ever chewed off, along with her forsaken desire to stop. A lungful of pot smoke. The Amazon River. Keys from her daughter's future piano, one black, one white. Regrets and reconciliations she's yet to make. The job she'll wish she'd have kept. Her grandchildren's first everything. The dentist pauses to check the x-ray. He spritzes something in the fresh cavity, and out come her final words. She feels them swirl around her cheeks, bracing to launch off the tip of her tongue. She can't quite hear them, but there they go. What do I say? What will I say? That's it, says the dentist. He shows her a healthy, white, dimpled crown, then flips it over to reveal a decayed black catacomb in the root. Nice one. Wait, shush. She tries to shush him, desperately. Her tongue probes inside the gaping hole, feels a familiar tickle in the nose. Relax, says the dentist. He introduces the horrible suction tube to the inside of her gums. Its violent aspiration manages to catch the tail of those flighty final words and draw them back a bit. Her ears ache. She thinks she can almost hear. Her chest distends with a sudden gasp of air. Not now. Not now. But she can't help it. The sneeze breaks forth, strong enough to splatter the moon, shattering her last words into their individual letters and blowing them all into hurricane swirls, racing into the painting on the ceiling. She sees a T, an L, a double E. They slip between strands of barbed wire. Vowels tangle in the wild wheat, disintegrating on the withering leaves. A faint yellow light pulses among the fingers of the oak. Her lips part and rejoin. Sunset's luster starts to wane. It's fine, she thinks. One day, I'll remember it all. Lying back in some old chair, nose twitching. And that day, gently, as if reciting ancient verse, each word will leap from her lips, and she will follow free of flesh, far off and away across the mountains. After and before. In the end, fringed by darkness and cold, she has at last become everything. Yet she is now so diffused that everything is little more than a series of unrelated impressions. How long has this been going on? trillions of years without the energy required for even the slightest iteration. The more she wonders, the less her thoughts make sense. She's forgotten how it feels to change. Occasionally, certain ideas congeal and a feeble glow stirs in the void before slipping under the waves of memory. Soon the darkness will petrify to the point where even the faintest flicker would resemble the conclusion to some violent star. If only there were still eyes to see. For a moment, serenity settles over the surface of a black well. These eons have been one deep breath, a slow settlement of empty corridors.
she feels a tickle behind her eyes, her gasp as sharp as the nose of a fountain pen. Embers erupt, bellowing Dawn's empty shell. Between ragged drapes of shadow looms a fractured golden light. So, Alveolus. Yeah. Good. What a good reading. Good, what a great reading, John. <laughs> you haven't actually. It's amazing. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, exactly. You haven't actually heard it. We're still sitting in the, in the same studio just 10 minutes later. Talking about giving away your secrets. Exactly. Now everybody knows. Exactly. We're all done. It's not live. It's, it's off-cast magic. Very live. Very live. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that there were different parts that you sort of stitched together for this mm -hmm. piece. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what these individual stories used to be? Yeah. Um, so Alveolus was originally the middle part all by itself. And uh, that was written a few years ago. Um, and then the other parts were written this year. But the one about the girl at the dentist um, was written for a woman who I was interested in, was pursuing. And I remember one day uh, she and I were talking and she said she was going to the dentist and she hated dentists and she was terrified and it was just going to be a nightmare, yada, yada, yada. So I wrote that story for her, I guess, to make her feel better. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if it makes her feel better <laughs> if there's all kind of random stuff that they're going to take out of your tooth. I mean, I don't want people to take out I don't know, all of my childhood nightmares mm, or something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just out of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that it, that it would make anyone feel better. But hopefully it made her feel flattered to have a story written. <laughs> Uh, about her. I think that was maybe the main goal. And, and did it work? Um, we're still friends, so I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? What about the other ones then? Um, not written for other people, not seduction techniques at all. Um, they That was just a single story that I think it was prompted by something in one of the classes. I can't remember. I know we've had we had so many really great writing prompts um, during this year, and one of them I think triggered this. Um, You're talking specifically about about in the beginning, then, and then the last section, which right? Is, so all the other sections, right? So it was written to be a cyclical, um, I guess, like a really short flash fiction history of the universe. That would be probably the most succinct way to sum it up. And the history of the universe is summed up by a dentist yeah. taking stuff out of someone's. Yeah, that was the you know that was the zoom in moment. It could <laughs> right. have been anything, um, but that was the one. Oh, this, I really like that. And well, the yeah, the, no. and the sneezing was an overlap too. That was um, I feel like that was my subconscious at work. And the sneezing um, is the one, mm -hmm. the thing that connects all these, that ties all these terror stories together. Of yeah, course. yeah. Where did that come from? Um, for, remember? for the original story, it was it was uh, not a big deal. It was not. Um, she was. I think she was afraid of sneezing, uh, while the dentist oh, materials right. are in your face. Like right, it was just because if fear. you sneezed, then suddenly you were. You, yeah. you might make a mistake or anything. Exactly. Right. So that was just like a, a stray fear that the character had, and then when I started the other story, um, she was sneezed into being just using the sneeze as. An illustration of a kind of a let there be life 
or let there be light or a big bang right kind of thing and then i went back into the zoom in story and i made the sneeze more significant to her plot and her experience because now when she sneezes she has hallucinations what do the hallucinations mean really um they don't necessarily mean anything i think it's more about her capacity and the human obsession with trying to pattern match you know you get a hallucination and you try to make it mean something right right so for her in this particular moment um she's she's feeling like it says something about her future and her death right and she's not quite she able to get she sees herself in a casket for example yeah yeah so yeah i mean i think the whole story is about our impending futures and that, how that is kind of a, a haunt haunting concept with us all the time everywhere we go though we even even in our mon- most mundane moments um we and we try to kind of keep it down and suppressed i don't want to think about my death right now i don't want to think about my death right now but it's always there it's always cropping up and needling us whenever you sneeze whenever you sneeze yeah sneeze the life right out of yourself exactly so what uh, what's going to happen next well you're still going to write your books i suppose absolutely yeah i um and i finally have after this year i have or will by the end of the sum- the summer i will have enough short stories that i'm happy with that i will have a collection okay um so i'm going to be approaching publishers and agents but these are stored these are the short stories that aren't connected to your mm-hmm. grand overarching narrative and these are just separate stories right right cool. so these are this is a a random collection of shorts that I've written over the past five or six years. Well, cool. Can't wait to yeah. check those out. Then. You've read some of them, I'm pretty sure. And I'll be approaching agents and publishers kind of with one of each. I'll be like, I have these novels I'm working on and I have this book of short stories. Look how multifaceted so, I yeah, am. Yeah, <laughs> it should be, You'll be fine. a benefit, I guess. You'll be fine. Uh, well, thanks, thanks, Josh, for uh, for dropping by. Yeah, thank you, Lester. Good luck with your, uh, your writing career, of course. I appreciate it. Same to you. I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of each other this summer. Let's hope so. Cheers. Right. The From Arthur Seat podcast was produced by me, Lester Wagener, with the help of Megali Roman and Miro de Beer for 2019's From Arthur Seat anthology. Story excerpts were read by John Reed. Special thanks to Jack Taylor. From Arthur Seat 2019 is launching on the 8th of May. You can visit us at fromarthurseat.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>